0: This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. In the New York Times is an extensive piece on what's happening to women in Afghanistan. It's called Loss, Piles on Loss for Afghan Women. It's written by Christina Goldbaum, who has been covering Kabul for a while and is now joining us from London. Uh, You interviewed many women for this piece. Uh, Conditions are fairly dangerous for women in Kabul, it seems to me. So how did you first of all, how did you go about putting all this together, Christina?
1: Sure. So myself and a colleague, Kiana Hayari, who's a photographer, we spent a couple of weeks pretty much traveling kind of across the country, uh, talking to women in major cities and other rural areas, trying to understand how the many edicts rolling back women's rights have affected Afghan women, you know, in in various parts of the country. You know, in the last year and a half since the Taliban has seized power, we've seen, you know, edict after edict coming from the government, you know, rolling back many of the freedoms that women had earned over the last 20 years of U.S. occupation. And more recently, and in recent months, we've seen edicts that have pretty much barred women from working in most um, public-facing jobs. They've been barred from working in NGOs, which has had a significant impact on the delivery of aid across the country in the midst of pretty dire humanitarian crisis right now. Women and teenagers and older women barred from attending high schools and attending universities. So again, we wanted to understand, you know, how these policies that have come to define this new government that's run by the Taliban, come to define how other countries interact with this government, have you know affected women's daily lives.
2: What story sticks out? There's so many in your article. <laughs> um, I had to read through so many. And uh, of course, a, a real mixed bag, too, of reactions. But uh, what story for you uh, stands out the most?
1: Well, I think actually two juxtaposing stories. Um, You know, we talked to one woman who uh, lives in Wardak. It's an area that saw kind of the brunt of the war over the last 20 years. It's where some of the fiercest clashes, you know, between um, the former government's army and the Taliban took place. And she was a woman who, you know, like many, had had experienced the kind of worst of the war, right? She had lost one of her sons who had been working in their field and then was shot by, you know, a police officer from the former government. Her village, like almost everyone had lost some family member in the course of the war. And you have to remember that, you know, 70% of the country lives in rural areas. And so their experience over the last year and a half has been very different from a lot of the headlines that we see, right? You know, for her, she was saying, I finally, because the war ended when the Taliban seized power, I finally have the freedom to leave my house and know that I will come home at night, know that, you know, my son's kids will come home at night. We don't have to worry about, you know, getting hit with a stray bullet or, you know, getting targeted in an airstrike. And that's an opinion, you know, that, you know, is... Very specific to, I think, rural areas that saw the worst of the war, but it's one that is important to remember as kind of a backdrop for, you know, how different women experience this chapter of Afghanistan. At the same time, you know, we also talked to a woman, Masuda, um, who's a therapist in Kabul, and you know she has been talking to younger women, older women in major cities that obviously saw a massive change over the last twenty years. You know she's talking to younger women who grew up in this era of possibility. You know after the U.S. invaded, who you know dreamed of becoming politicians and lawyers. Um, you know always wanted to go to high schools and universities and never imagined a world in which they couldn't do those things. Kind of heard these stories from their mothers. Uh, of, you know, what it was like during the Taliban's first stretch in power in the 1990s. And it almost felt like folklore. And they've experienced this, you know, really intense whiplash, um, as the therapist Masuda described it, of, you know, suddenly all of that is lost. And so a lot of the younger women who she's talking to, lot the young women that we spoke with, were kind of in this period of grieving right now and trying to come to terms with this very new reality that they are now dealing with, where, you know, some now are going to these underground schools, these secretive schools in order to continue their education. Others are pretty much confined to their homes because, you know, they're not allowed to, to go to school. They're not allowed to go out to a public park or a zoo and see their friends anymore. Um, you know, they don't have much hope for their own futures. And they're trying to, you know, come to terms with, again, this very different reality.
0: Did any of them want the United States to come back and try to fix it?
1: In a way, yes. Again, speaking to younger women, there is a um, you know a desire for change, um, whether that is through violent means or not. But I think we also have to give a lot of credit to these women who themselves are trying to make changes. We spoke to one woman, Sohaila, in a city Harat in the northwest. She was an activist and pretty much since the sees power, she saw a lot of local leaders, a lot of women activists leaving the country. And she decided that she wanted to stay because as she said, you know, someone has to stay here and create the change we want to see with this new government. And, you know, she's basically spent the last year and a half trying to negotiate with local officials to carve out more of a space for women. You know, a lot of other women activists that we spoke to, they've been, you know, trying to find ways of working with this government to create more spaces for women, create more exemptions to some of these more hardline policies coming from the Taliban's top leadership in the South and Kandahar. But I do think there is still that sense of abandonment that, you know, was very palpable in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal. The U.S. kind of coming in and um, introducing all of these changes, giving women so many freedoms that they could enjoy. And then suddenly leaving. I do think that there is a strong sense among women and men of abandonment by the U.S. still.
0: New York Times reporter Christina Goldbaum, her piece is called Loss Piles on Loss for Afghan Women. Christina, thank you. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Here's another edition of Dude, Where's My Lane? This is not the news westbound 520 drivers wanted to hear. They're not going to get their second lane back to I-5 anytime soon. Chris is going to explain it.
3: Well, I feel really happy now, Dave, that I got you to say, Dude, Where's My Lane? That has been a career. uh, That's a career builder right there. to fulfill Uh, your dreams. Love it. When work to build the new reversible HOV lane between 520 and the I-5 express lanes began last year, the contractor took one of the two lanes of the ramp from westbound 520 to southbound I-5. For a work zone It also took one of the express lanes That second on-ramp lane Was scheduled to reopen by this month But it has not returned And it is not going to. Drivers are not going to be getting that lane back for another year. The Washington Department of Transportation has decided to leave the work zone in place until the project is close to completion next year. The contractor says there's just too much work left to do. It's a really constricted area. The lane the contractor closed on the I-5 Express lanes will also not open until October
4: we're going to have them keep the lane reductions in place primarily so that we can uh, do it for a safety reason. We don't want to put some of the workers at risk and we don't want to put our drivers or travelers at risk either with trying to finagle their ways through an active construction zone.
3: washdots Tony Black says delaying that reopening of that ramp lane should keep the project on schedule though.
4: We do certainly understand uh, the public's desire to kind of want to have things get done and get this project over with and this decision is going to help us uh, hopefully be able to stay on schedule as well as maintain safety for everyone involved
3: the reversible lane between 520 and the express lanes is expected to open in just over a year and black says it will change the landscape and the sight
4: lines along i-5 this is going to be a really busy year for us so the, this summer is going to be probably some of the most biggest significant visual changes that the traveling public will see.
3: Because it's a flyover ramp there from the west end of I-5 over and then into the express lanes. So it's going to go over the main line of northbound I-5 and then get down into the express lanes. Now, this reversible lane will start as transit only, but will convert to a general HOV lane when the entire 520 project is done. And Dave, as you know, that's about another eight and a half years away. Eight and, <laughs> and a, a half, half, half years. years away. <laughs> yes. Uh, when the extension to Montlake to I-5 over Portage Bay is scheduled to open as well. Now, drivers could expect a busy year of lane closures around this corridor, especially at Mercer Street in the express lanes, because that's where this is all going to kind of tie in as the construction progresses. The Montlake Lid Project closures will also continue, of course. The Lid Project and this reversible lane project are expected to wrap up about the same time in spring of next year, and then those projects will be done, and then we can now move over to that from Montlake to Portage Bay and another as I said, eight
0: and a half years of construction. This is why I'm eating well, getting exercise, and taking care of myself because I want to live to see that. Yeah, I know. It's, at
3: some point, it'd be nice to drive all the way across and have all three lanes all the way over to I. Chris around
0: here, <laughs> time is measured differently. Yes, eight and a half years may not be eight and a half years yeah well exactly uh so yeah we have
3: again we've got a little delay going here uh we'll see just ask the people in tacoma Mm. um (laughs) because by the time this project is done the entire 520 Mm -hmm. it'll be about 20 plus years which is what the folks in tacoma have had to deal with there with uh, all the work there that just wrapped up last summer and
0: time to start the next project yep exactly (laughs) And here we go to Olympia, where the latest debates involve a new pathway to a high school diploma and whether prison inmates should have to pay for family visits. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, who joins us live. Hello, Matt. Good
5: morning, Dave. Day 65 of the 105-day session. Uh, things are going as planned. We're both sides of the House and the Senate are basically throwing bills that they each side had passed, throwing it back to the other chamber, and now they're debating whether to add stuff, subtract stuff. And one of those things you brought up that's actually been tried before. This has made its rounds last couple years of trying to create a new pathway to graduation, you get a high school diploma, an alternative just to the what we've all been traditionally just going to school and take your tests, your AP tests, and trying to go for college. Well, there's some non-traditional ways that people want to have to get a high school diploma, and this is one of those. It's basically a graduation pathway that enables the students to meet the requirements of the school, but it's based on a performance-based learning experience, something like if you are, one example was brought up, you're a writer. Another one was brought up, if you're a welder in a town that needs a lot of welders, because there's some low some industry there, um, and you, you're proficient at it, that should go toward your graduation requirement um, in lieu of other classes. But basically, you still have to take the three R's and pass those. Now, Democratic Representative Monica Terrado Stonier, the bill sponsor, says it's about students who are passionate and the jobs that that are needed in the local community.
1: In this pathway in particular, students would not only have to meet the metrics set by the school system to help them graduate and earn. The- those credits, but would also, in addition, have to um, be signed off by their host, maybe community uh, entity or work site, uh, that they are also college and career ready. So it's actually, in my um, belief, a higher standard to be met.
5: Now, Kim Reichdahl is the school's district's, actually say, o- uh, office of superintendent in public instructions is the counseling lead in that office. And yes, the office, uh, of the superintendent of public instruction is her husband, Chris Reichdahl. And she has concerns about the broadness of this type of individualized graduation requirement.
1: The considerable flexibility of this bill will make it very challenging for district to report how and for whom it is being used.
5: So that's kind of what's at the table there with graduation requirements. It, it, it passed the house 6334, so it had some dissent, and again, it's been tried before, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's an effort, Dave, that to, to really individualize graduation, but at the same time you've got to stick the, the three R's in there somehow and pass those, uh, so they're so-called graduate or college ready.
0: Mm-hmm. So, well, it sounds like a way to make sure that nobody suffers the stigma of not having a high school diploma, because basically correct, everybody finds something they're
5: good at, right? Right. Yeah. You have your GED, you have your normal path, and you can get a oh, high school. And there's vocational schools, obviously, that we that are out there in the high school districts. But this is more individualized, so for the particular student, and that's what they're trying. And we'll see if it happens, uh, if it passes this year. Okay, talk about these uh, prison family visits that that would be charged for. Yes, so right now, you know, prisoners earn a whopping forty-two cents an hour in the state prison system for doing all their jobs or whatever, and they they and they use that money to pay for as required in the state statutes to pay for goods and services and education, or earned early release days. They also pay for privileges like. Cable TV access, uh, uh, weightlifting, recreational sports and supplies. Um, These are things that how they spend their money. Now, an extended family visit is on that list to be paid for. And it costs $5 a day if you want to have a weekend in a cottage on the prison grounds with your family or your spouse. Uh, separate from the everybody else, it's a little cottage, and there's 14 of the 15 prisons in our state have these. Uh, it costs you $5 a day or $15 for a weekend, and that's basically you do the math. A weekend is 36 hours of work, and you have to pay for all the other privileges too. Mm. So, but they're, they're saying that uh, Representative Daira Far- Farvar it has this bill that she says you know family visits are important and maybe should be excluded from any payment.
2: It's an opportunity for folks to strengthen or at the very least maintain that
1: relationship with their family. So when they come back out, they do have that support to rely on.
5: And and Christy Knutson of the Department of Corrections lays out, actually, who's eligible to go do these visits?
1: Children, stepchildren, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, parents, step-parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles, and persons legally married registered domestic partnership with an inmate, but does not include an inmate adopted by another inmate.
5: I thought that last one was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. An inmate adopted by another inmate, so they can get around the system and have a conjugal visit yeah. so to speak well, i mean
0: yeah. it's, it's, I think it's a, people who work with uh, those who have these problems agree that if if you 're going to stay out of prison once you 've done your time, you you have to have a support system that 's essential. And it isn't part of the reason for doing this to make sure that you can establish that support system?
5: Yes, you're correct. But, you know, it's a privilege. And I'm going to skip the uh, next bite because Republican Dan Griffey, uh who basically led the Republicans who all voted against this uh it was urging a no vote.
6: We do believe that this is an earned privilege, paying a nominal fee to have your family come by. We don't see that as an excessive burden. Mm-hmm. So
0: they want to keep the 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 cost there. They want to still impose that cost.
5: Huh? Well, yes, they 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 feel that if you're going to earn a privilege, and that's part of being in, I guess, being rehabilitated, is that you have to earn. Mm-hmm. You have to raise money to earn something that you want, and uh, in terms of a ticket item on the prison scale, things uh, a family visit for a whole weekend that's expensive at thirty six yeah. hours, uh, you know, forty two cents an hour. Yeah. Uh, so they say they want to keep that privilege in there.
0: Yeah, you know, I can see why it's it's useful as a discipline tool, no question about it. But it seems to me you shouldn't you shouldn't put it out of reach because ultimately most of these people are coming back into the community. And if they're just cast adrift with no support system, they'll be back, which costs even more money.
5: Yeah. And I want play one more thing for yeah. you, Dave. Um, so the B.C. premier made his first visit to uh, Washington State. It's uh, David Eby from uh, British Columbia. Uh, he was elected there in November. So he paid a visit to uh, Governor Inslee. And by the way, Governor Inslee is a pretty tall guy. This guy's taller than Governor Inslee. <laughs> wow. Um, but... I thought this was interesting. They had a press conference, and, and they were talking about housing and you know cooperation and whatever. But he laid out, while the governor was standing right there, ways that British Columbia right now is taxing their way into additional housing.
6: Uh, we have a speculation and vacancy tax. When you have a, uh, a property that's left vacant in a speculation and vacancy tax area, you pay a higher property tax uh, to the provincial government. Uh, That money is then turned back to housing. We have a foreign buyer's tax, uh, which uh, places a higher uh, property tax on people buying from outside British Columbia. Uh, We recently changed our strata rules, a number of stratas that did not permit rentals in those condo buildings. Uh, and, uh, we've made it legal for anyone to rent their unit because we do have a tax if you leave your unit vacant. So it felt unfair.
0: Wow.
5: Was the, go- did the governor look interested? Well, that's just it. <laughs> He's standing there listening to all these ideas. Well, if you don't rent your place, you're taxed higher. Yeah. You know what? You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, and Strata, by the way, is a homeowners association in Canada. Uh-huh. So, you know, super in here in our state, uh, homeowner associations, uh, can prevent their condo owners from renting. Yeah. So basically, he's standing there listening to all these ideas, and I thought, you know, I felt that that was kind of interesting. I thought it played for you. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see if the governor says, "Huh, I'm going to take these ideas that I wasn't planning on using, but maybe they'll work here in Washington State." Imagine some taxing ideas I hadn't thought of. Yeah, taxing, <laughs> taxing that you don't rent if you have yeah. a vacant property, you get paid higher because it's not being used. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. how about that? Yep. Matt Markovich, thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave.
2: A little change up for your Daily Dose of Kindness this morning. This song by Jason Derulo, and that's because the story is about him. Your Daily Dose of Kindness is brought to you by Robert W. Baird. So pop star Jason Derulo, he made a waiter in Nebraska very happy after jordan schaefer served the singer and his family at charleston's restaurant in omaha he was surprised to see that derulo left him a large tip on that seven hundred sixty dollar bill the tip was five thousand dollars the waiter shared the news and his experience on his tiktok last week
4: wow my my heart's beating (laughs) (laughs) hey jason thank you you just paid for a semester of my college I can't say thank you enough. So, you know, I hope you and your family have a wonderful time in Omaha and I hope you see us again. Thank you so much. Dude, check it out. I can't believe this. $5,000.
2: If you didn't hear that, he says it'll pay for a semester of his college. Derulo later posted in the comments on Schaefer's post, uh, blessed to be a blessing is what he wrote. You seem like a great person. Thank you for taking such good, great care of our fam. Keep spreading the love, bro. Derulo's gesture adds to a list of generous actions by the artist. In 2020, Derulo, along with Will Smith, surprised a man by the name of Aiden Yielding, a 14-year-old who had been undergoing chemotherapy for leukemia
0: 748 and now from the g and ursula show which starts at nine here on cairo news radio here is g scott so where do you stand on bank
4: failures and who gets their money and who doesn't um that it's a great place for rich people to hang out at because for some reason they're always protected i i told the story on twitter yesterday and um I've been thinking about all of the protections that they want to make sure that all the depositors, they want to make sure that they're fine, even if you deposited over $250,000. And you know that it's a possibility that it's not insured, but you want to protect them. And I was thinking about 2011 when I had over 300 and some dollars in uh, overdraft fees. I don't know if you guys have ever had those before. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Uh, but I, I racked them up, right? And. I went in there and they were like, oh, well, you know, we'll help you out with $35 with one of the fees, mm-hmm. right? But the rest I was tasked with to do myself. And I know someone's listening right now is like, well, you should make bad decisions. Fair. Fair. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. But it's almost like when poor people make bad decisions, it's uh, you need to do better. But when banks make bad decisions, they, for some reason, get all the help that they need. And I'm not sitting here like I'm glad that the people, the businesses at sVb that um that are gonna be in trouble, that haven't these maybe these startups and everything like that, and they have to pay employees and get payroll. I'm actually happy that they're they're gonna get help, right? Because that's the way it should be. If someone in America is hurting, Let's help them. Mm-hmm. But let's not pick and choose when help is a good or a bad thing. Like college loans. <laughs> hmm. Like the $10,000 college student re- relief debt. You should have
2: me? gone to college so, if you huh, can't pay. Huh, it. Huh,
4: you you, you got to get avocado toast and lattes. But this bank thing, the bank thing, I think it does this. I think it's what the pandemic has done and everything. I think what we have seen lately is a spotlight on all of the inequities in every facet of this country, whether it is the criminal justice system, whether it is the health care system, whether it is taxation, whether it is the banking, we can do this all day long. You just pick what's impacting you, because even if you are someone that says, well, I this is my politics. I got to tell you something. I don't care what your politics are. Your politics is this you want to take care of your family right You want to live as long as you can. you want to do the best that you can. There ain't no politics helping you out with that. The best politics is human decency right mm-hmm. when it comes to help. So anyway, this banking thing is something that um, is something but is' something that uh, we've always known that banks well, well who, who do you help? think
0: got bailed out that didn't deserve it? Because my understanding is most of the depositors, over $250 we're talking about, are those companies who are using the bank for their their payroll agent. Right. And I I think... uh, The management was fired, and all the shareholders are zeroed out. No doubt. Okay, let's let's put them to the
4: side. Now, how much of a jerk would I be if I said, "Hmm, well, you should have known the rules. Mm -hmm. How much of a jerk would I be if I say, well, what does FDIC insure? Does it insure a million dollars, Roscoe? No. It insures $250,000. So anything above that, if it's gone, it's gone. Those are the rules. That's right. But I'm not going to be a jerk and do that.
0: And you're saying the same rules, they don't have that same attitude when you're talking about people trying to get rid of an overdraft fee. They right. just say those are the rules and no exceptions for you.
2: Yeah, and, go and, to and, jail if you can't pay it.
4: So when President Biden talks about fees... Mm-hmm. $11 billion a year in overdraft fees in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's not coming from rich people, is it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't think rich people that- <laughs> overdraft. Could you,
4: could you imagine a, a rich person having an overdraft fee and they walk into the bank and they say, hey, hey, Lois, um, there's an overdraft fee on my account. Oh, let me get right She'd on that say, right now. She's "You're good. You're good. No, you take you're care good, of it, sweetie." Good. Yeah. But, but if I come in, hey, I messed up. I got three hundred dollars worth. Of, yeah, okay. Well, we'll take off thirty-five dollars.
6: Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: we had that experience at at a bank too. A bank that. You know, we've since left. Uh, It's a family story, so I'm not going to name any names, but let's just say, you know, things were just regular customer service until there was inheritance involved. And then they wanted to come on in, sit down, let me see your money. And then the 2009 crash happened. Crickets, crickets, (laughs) crickets, because they lost that money.
4: So, I, I know we got only got about less than 30 seconds left. Dave, I know you've talked a lot about this SVB mm-hmm. deal. What, what, what was your takeaway? I'm glad that the management
0: was punished. I mean, that's what didn't happen last time.
2: You don't think they'll end up at another financial institution? Oh, they
0: probably will.
2: Yeah, but they'll be fine. How about, the,
0: how about the people? They'll have to lie about their resume, though. Uh, but,
4: but
2: you, 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 <laughs> you, you, or they you, have friends. But
4: you got to make sure you tell the whole story, because there were... Uh, the chief financial officers, or of all kinds of people that left SVB before, right before, oh, yeah. and took their money. Stock sell uh, off. I wonder. Uh, you, you think they knew something was yeah. coming?
0: There's <laughs> Not also the know. part where they lobbied to get rid of the regulations that might have stopped this from happening. But that's a whole other segment. Yeah. G Scott, nine o'clock, Shh. Kyrie news. Radio. See you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Seattle's morning news. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan joining us now from the New York Times david farenthold so let's let's talk about the whole silicon valley bank thing because that uh, that seems to be drawing a lot of comment from people who might have designs on higher office the latest one being senator elizabeth warren who seemed to be a little critical of of joe biden for bailing out the depositors so what is she aiming for here
6: well i think she's saying that you know there, there are a lot of rich people a lot of rich venture capitalists and large companies that had their money in this bank. And if they, you know, they, they should have hedged their own risk. And that by bailing out this bank and making all those depositors whole, Joe Biden is basically creating an expectation that no bank will ever fail and, you know, staking the U.S. government, basically covering everybody's risky decisions.
0: If he had not made depositors, all those depositors included companies that kept all their payroll cash uh, in the bank, that would have, it seems to me, hurt a lot of innocent people who had nothing to do with this.
6: Yeah, th- this is the difference between being a senator and being a president. Being a senator means you can complain about everything. Being a president means you have to think about what's next. What what worse thing will happen if you don't act now? And I think you're right. Biden was worried that if he if didn't backstop the depositors in this bank, a whole bunch of companies in Silicon Valley wouldn't have money. You know, who had money in the bank wouldn't be able to pay their employees. People would get fired. There'd be this sort of sort of cascading effect in silicon valley and also just a fear across the u.s banking system so i think he thought whatever moral hazard there was in doing this there would be worse consequences by not doing it
0: okay ronda santis's comments i was reading through those i did a commentary about it yesterday which got a little pushback from listeners who said dave come on ronda santis has a point here this was a, a, a bank relating to a lot of companies who had all sorts of uh, you know diversity inclusion things and and they put political correctness essentially Above financial responsibility. Is there any substance to DeSantis' charge?
6: I don't think so. I mean, this is basically for for uh, for Biden. I mean, for for DeSantis, you know, he has a hammer, which is wokeness, and everything looks like a nail. So, if <laughs> wokeness has caused everything, wokeness, you know, causes cancer. Wokeness killed the dinosaurs. Wokeness is the thing that he feels like is at the root of all evil, and so it's the root of this evil as well. I mean, certainly, this company did have diversity and inclusion policies. They talked a lot about, like many modern Silicon Valley workplaces do, about diversity, inclusion, and other things. You know, and maybe you could argue that distracted them from the giant problem—the financial center of their bank. But the giant problem—the financial center of their bank—really wasn't created by their woke policies. Um, you know, you could easily as say, easily say they were distracted by having lunch. They didn't fix this problem, so I guess you could blame everything else they did while they weren't fixing it.
0: His slogan appears to be "Fight the Woke." Now, I heard that for the first time this morning.
6: Yeah, that's his. You know, he says Florida is a state where woke goes to die. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's gonna, he's looking at making that, and maybe as we talked about last week in high crime, the centerpieces of his campaign. You know, I guess that resonates with some people. I, I just don't you know, like in this case sort of demonstrates the limits of it. You know, can you really blame a bank's failure on wokeness? Maybe. Maybe some people believe that.
0: Yeah. Uh, this morning we're seeing all sorts of headlines about other banks that may be threatened besides Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. the The president seems to be saying emergency over. We've handled this. Is it?
6: Well, I don't know. I mean, there's certainly in the stock market, there has been a lot of pressure on regional banks and banks that are sort of focused on one industry, like Silicon Valley Bank was on Silicon Valley. Uh, So Signature Bank, a bank in New York that was really catering to law firms, uh, also was taken over by regulators. So I think people are looking for the next Silicon Valley Bank. But I don't think that you're going to see the same peril just because Silicon Valley Bank is, I mean, the the whole, the story of their downfall is complicated. Basically, they, had, they have double risk to high interest rates. Both their depositors, the people who put the money in the bank, were going to be in trouble if there were high interest rates and might pull their money out. And the places they put the bank put its own money were going to be in trouble if interest rates went up. And they didn't seem to understand that. I'm not sure anybody else is as exposed to that as Silicon Valley is.
0: Well, let me ask this. Is this a warning signal to the Fed, which apparently is going to keep raising interest rates, that there could be consequences that they hadn't anticipated
6: I think it is. Yeah. And, you know, crypto was kind of a, you know, an early warning sign of this, that people made a lot of decisions in like 21 and 22 based on the fact that interest rates were so low and and they're still kind of locked into them like Silicon Valley was with all of its uh, investments in treasury bonds. But, you know, I think if they keep raising it, the thing is, the Fed has been pretty clear that they're going to do this. I don't think anybody has taken the Fed's interest rate hikes as a surprise. So, you know, there is there are going to be consequences. But I think to get caught by these things, to get caught unawares like Silicon Valley Bank did, it's really sort of your fault, not the Fed's fault.
0: As our our go to Trump expert, uh, I need sure. the update on uh, what he's facing here. I'm we're certainly hearing more talk about the possibility of an indictment. And this comes this would come if it does in the in the Stormy Daniel case. Correct. Bring us up to speed on this.
6: Right. So this is a New York state case, not a federal case, and it it does relate to Stormy Daniels. If you remember, you know, a million years ago, a very 2016 campaign, uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's who was then Trump's fixer, paid off Stormy Daniels, the adult film star, to stay quiet about an allegation she had an affair with Trump. Uh, Basically, Cohen got reimbursed for the payoff through the Trump organization, and they filed business records saying that it was like consulting fees or something, something other than like payoff to adult film star. And uh, there's a the allegation is that Trump broke uh, broke business laws both by paying off Stormy Daniels and by falsifying records to cover up what he'd done. The, that's been a case that's been knocking around for a long time. Obviously, Michael Cohen pled guilty in federal court to his role in about three years ago, four years ago. And the state, the Manhattan DA appears poised to bring a case against Trump personally. There now the the advantage to that case for the prosecutors over all the other possible state crimes we've talked about for Trump. Is that you don't need Alan Weisselberg, who Trump's CFO, who was refused to testify against him. You've got an insider, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen will tell you anything you want to know about how bad Donald Trump was and how he set this up. And he's been telling everybody for years. So they have an insider there that will help them bring that case. So I I think that they are going to indict Trump. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be something that would put Trump in jail for 100 years, but it would be a criminal case against Trump, which we've not seen so far.
0: Mm. Now, does that affect his campaign? He's headed to Iowa. He's uh, making speeches. It sounds like the campaign is ramping up. Does this represent a threat to that?
6: I don't think immediately. I mean, I think actually there will be a boost to it in the, in the intermediate term, you know, because he'll, he'll be able to say, look, the liberals are out to get me. It puts Trump in the headline again. You know, know, his main rival is DeSantis, and this gives him a sort of an advantage on Fox News over DeSantis, at least for a few days. So I I don't think it hurts him right away. I mean, I guess if he goes to jail, maybe he couldn't be Mm -hmm. be president again. But I think the chances of that, I think, are pretty slim. Even if he's convicted of this, I can't see it being like a long jail term. So I think it will help him right away. The biggest threat to Trump's campaign is just Trump. He's kind of run out of ideas. People are not surprised by him anymore. He's talking about flying cars and having parents elect principals now. The ideas are getting stranger and stranger. I, I think he's the biggest threat to his campaign in this, this case.
0: David Farenthold from The New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross.
2: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here.
0: And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.